welcome to the second part of V for Various's interview with Dennis Sparrow, talking about the events in Aden in the 60s, and in particular 1967. Just a warning to listeners that the first question about how did the mutiny of 1967 unfold does contain some details which some listeners may find distressing. On the 19th of June is a camp in Little Aden which took in recruits for the Aden army, the federal army, mutinied. It was got under control by officers and senior NCOs, but it was an incident. Early the 20th, another Arab army barracks, the Federation Army, also mutinied. So there was two incidents of unrest within, we say, hours of each other, and nothing was really done about it. Early one morning, which is when things, we say, troops started moving about, a group of Royal Army Service Corps went to the local firing range, which was above the airfield or out into the desert from Kamaksa for firing practice, shooting practice. When they came back, the road, the track met, we say the main road, but a road where the part of the Federal Army barracks and police barracks were. Now, there are two sections of the police. There was the normal police and the armed police. This was the normal police and part of the Federal Army. They opened fire on the convoy, uh, this army convoy. I think they killed about eight and injured the same amount. They also killed a water engineer who happened to be passing with this police escort as well. So you had three incidents within each other. Again, nothing, not a state of emergency or anything like that was declared. It happened. So therefore they had to, to send troops into that army barracks to restore law and order. Several um, soldiers were killed during that operation. At the same time, or within about an hour after that it happened, the Northumberland Fusiliers, who were leaving Aden completely, but their area of duty was crater, sent patrols out as normal early one morning. One section, which was about ten men, had done the circle and walked past the armed police barracks, noticed that there t- appeared to be more police manning the walls and things like that but there was no incident and they walked past up to the pass which was like a gateway from the crater into into Marla. As they went up the slope towards the pass their immediate company commander was coming in the opposite direction two Land Rovers they also had a paratrooper in in it, and also um, some of the um, Argyles, because they were taking over. They were showing the area. And as they passed or got to the main gate of the police barracks, the police on the walls opened fire onto that patrol. And several of them were killed straight away, and several were captured, and they were tortured, burnt, and one was tied to a back of a Land Rover and drove through the streets, dragging it on behind. So it was quite a serious incident. The second part of the, 
the section patrol, arrived at the pass, and the young officer decided that he was going to go and look for his company commander at, with the two Land Rovers. And as they drove down to the towards the police barracks, they themselves came under fire. And out of probably about 10 soldiers, two of them survived. The rest was killed. Two, two escaped. That's why majority of the details are known, though they weren't allowed to say anything. So in, in all, you had these incidents, there still wasn't a state of an emergency declared. And the finish, you had, what, something like 22 British personnel killed within hours of each other. That's why it called the massacre. Mm -hmm. And then every all the troops were cleared out of crater itself, except for the Marines around the, the top of the crater, who were ordered in to try and reduce its spreading any, any further. And there was no hint that this revolt, this mutiny was coming? Well, they say there isn't, but when you have something happening almost one after the other, it was felt generally that somebody should have, they call it a state red, should up the state of alertness when these things happen, but they didn't. So up to a certain extent, there's no way if there was going to be a problem that we say 10 men should be just wandering around the streets of Aden, of Crater in particular, or a patrol in a Land Rover with just, what, eight men, something like that in. It's downright dangerous, or could be, but nobody stopped it. British troops weren't allowed to retaliate, which up to a certain you can understand, because if they'd opened fire on the police and the, arm, and the Federal Army troops, that could have expanded up country where they had units stationed and there were British people there, political officers and things like that, where they could have been killed. So you can understand up to a certain extent. But it was almost about two weeks before Madbitch actually went back into Crater. They'd done anything about it. Iconic 60s tune there. White Australia, Pale Purple Harem, number one at the time in Aden. So we heard about Mad Mitch, Lieutenant Colonel Colin Mitchell, who had blotted his copybook, disobeyed orders, but earned the respect of his men and the um, adulation of the media in retaking Crater after the mutiny and massacre. No loss to British lives during that taking and only one enemy fatality. On the night of July the 3rd, this is taking from Lieutenant Colonel Colin Mitchell's obituary in the Telegraph from 1996. On the night of July the 3rd, Colin Mitchell, Lieutenant Colonel Colin Mitchell, ordered Pipe Major Kenneth Robinson to sound the regimental charge. As Mitchell recalled it, it is the most thrilling sound in the world to go into action with the pipes playing. It stirs the blood and reminds one of the heritage of Scotland and the regiment. Best of all, it frightens the enemy to death. And this coming up is the tune, just the first 20, 30 seconds of it, that was played to announce that they were going in, the Argyle and Southern Highlanders. Now, there is an issue regarding receiving a medal for many of the Aden veterans. The government and the MOD, for some reason, and Dennis goes into some of those reasons in just a moment, a medal, a general service medal, will not be awarded, which when you are putting life and limb on the line for queen and country, as were, 
it baffles, it completely baffles one. And anyway, so I asked Dennis Sparrow to tell us about the non-award of a medal for service. Well, up until July 1960, anyone who served in Aden either Royal Marines or any other services, because obviously there are Army battalions, Royal Artillery, Engineers, everything you can think of, as well as there's a naval base there. The Navy and the Royal Marines would was awarded the Naval General Service Medal. The Army and the Air Force was awarded what was generally known as the Army General Service Medal as well. And... It was because of where they lived, what was happening, and the we say the danger they were in. For some reason, in July or before then of 1960, they decided that there wasn't enough um, danger for this award to be continued. So they they discontinued it, and the argument is that. The powers that be, and it was partly a government thing, as well as service chiefs, to discontinue these awards, that everything stopped. Well, for five commander up country with artillery, engineers and RAF personnel were still being fired on. They were still being mined. And at one point in 62-63, the artillery units were attacked and they were actually firing their guns on open sites, which effectively mean that the rebels were actually within 50, 100 yards. They were that under pressure. So the argument is the danger still continued right through that period of time. But the, the service chiefs didn't agree. Well, they were sat in Aden, generally started work, if you could call it that, for them maybe about 8 o'clock in the morning. About 1 o'clock they finished, went back to the officers' mess. They played tennis in all the, the normal things, we say, on a forum posting, and that was it. They they weren't involved, which was what was going on. The RAF was up to a certain extent, but like pilots, they would fly up country and had a mission to bomb, we say, a certain area or shoot at a certain area. Then they flew home and they were again. They finished their work and went off, went off if they were married accompanied to the family or to the officers. So therefore, there was two areas, uh, one in, still in conflict and one which, has, which wasn't. But you could never separate the two because of the, me- of want of a medal, because one survived or can't survive without the other. So it's an end block. Uh, a Royal Marine serving up country it, we say should be awarded a medal. So should the RAF engineer who's repairing aircraft, etc. as well. Now this went right on right up to April the 25th, 1964. There was no medal issued. And then because of the RADFAN operations, they brought out a new medal, the General Service Medal, which uh, replaced the two other medals for RADFAN operations. Again, it was... It contradicted what the medal is for, for living in dangerous areas, put it basically. And yet, before that medal, the timing of that medal to be awarded, a convoy within two or three hundred yards of the Ranfan was blown up. Several officers were wounded. 
there was a signaler killed. So the danger was still there even before that award time. But those years where there wasn't award, the High Commission actually recommended the award of a medal. I think it was two or three times. But the service chiefs turned it down. And even though there were probably casualties in that time. There were, yeah. there were two friends of mine were killed during that, in 1963, mm-hmm. and several were killed and wounded during that period of time. We are considering the non-award of a General Service Medal for folk active in Aden at the time of hostilities, and there being a relatively safe area, and those upcountry particularly involved in very dangerous operations and whom um, received injuries and fatalities in that time. So I asked, has there been any change on the medal issue? None at all. Approximately a year or so ago, a brigadier was given the job to re- to look at the reason why a medal wasn't awarded. And he, as part of what he was supposed to do, he rang me and asked me for details uh, or to provide details of the reason why the medal should be awarded. I'll give you that. You don't have to comment about it now. Okay. But that is exactly what I sent to the Prime Minister. Okay. Our MPs, etc. Why it should be awarded. Okay. Mm-hmm. All I've done is compact all the information I could find to the reason why. I sent him those details and the answer came back that they didn't see there was any change in reason why it should be awarded and it was literally dropped. Okay, what you heard there was Dennis handing me a a dossier of um, reasons why it was dangerous enough to receive a General Service Medal. And there's documentation of the amount of fatalities, the dangers of accompanying the convoys, supply convoys to Vidala Road. Extensive documentation that it, it was a dangerous exercise being there in Aden. So we have the explicit explosives that could kill you, bullets and mines, but it wasn't only explosives that could kill you. We found it comical, but the situations... Two situations in particular um, also reflect just how dangerous it was living in the mountains. Our patrols in the mountains along the border of Yemen were either done on foot or right from the start, or we would be driven in our own convoy out to a point, then we would start our patrol. The tracks in the mountains used to zigzag up the side of a mountain, and they were obviously literally like a W, uh, quite sharp. And on one occasion, I was in the back of a three-ton truck with my section, and being in charge of the section, I was actually in the back, on the left-hand side looking back. And we'd gone round this sharp, really sharp bend, and the lorry was having problems, three-ton truck was having problems of getting traction. So it was quite rough. In the tailgate of a three-ton truck was held by, it's like a bar with a slot in, which you pushed the, the tailgate up and you pulled it up. It's like locked in position. But the vibration shook these catches out. And as we came round the corner with a thousand foot drop on the one side, the tailgate dropped and I literally stepped out of the back 
I had luck enough to land on my two feet, but the truck continued on up the side of the mountain. So there was me, so I stopped and then having to race up the side of the mountain to get back into the truck. It was not going to stop. And of course, everybody who was in the back of the truck found it extremely funny that uh, I'd be racing up behind of it. Well, obviously you got there eventually. Oh, yes, I got in the truck eventually, out being getting caught out of it and dragged a little bit before I was hauled back in. But that something very simple like that and hilarious, how dangerous that I could have stepped and literally gone completely over the side yeah. and that have been it. Another little incident which happened in Aden, behind the camp there was a, like a row of jebels or small mountains which... Again, volcanic rock, which was our scramble course. Mm -hmm. So the idea, you run from the camp up the side, along the top, down and back to the camp. On one morning, a Marine who had just not long arrived in Aden did the course. And when he got to the bottom, he collapsed. Heat exhaustion. Two or three Marines with him literally picked him up and threw him in the sea. It saved his life because it cooled his body down. But for then onwards, he always said they tried to dry him. Mixed you know, the funniest, the funny side of it, but they say their quick action actually saved his life, but they say in doing so, they nearly drowned him. One of the jobs that Dennis had to do, as well as other people doing the job, was to check for mines along the road. In the dossier of information sent to the Prime Minister and MOD and other places, there are pictures of trucks which were hit by mines. It was very dangerous, but sometimes these possible mines turned out not quite what you thought they might be. The other occasion, which again involved in a convoy, and it was like your dad on a convoy before he came home, and I'd spent some time up in Dala, and I was my time was up, and I was in charge of the Royal Marine Escort on the convoy going back to Aden. So I was sat in the first three-ton truck alongside the driver. In front of us was a ferret armoured car, and its wheelbase is quite narrow. And as we were driving along, I could see this pile of sand in the track of the three-tonner. And the closer it got, it started with mine ticking over, because the week before, a, a truck had got blown up. Uh, that that could be a mine. At first, I was like, no, no, it's not. But as we got closer, I realised that I was sat over the wheel, which would go along that wheel track. So I, uh, I screamed at the driver to pull over, and there's only about a couple of feet each side, because there wasn't much room to manoeuvre. Anyway, we went past this pile of sand in the, the ground and pulled up, and I stopped the whole convoy in its tracks, got down on my hands and knees with a bayonet, and started clearing away okay. the sand. There was a hole, like a dip, in the sand, cleared it all away. At the bottom of that hole was a green woodbine cigarette packet. Okay. And while I was digging out, he shouldn't have, shouldn't have done it, but the truck behind us slowly crept forward. So there was a truck full of Marines seeing what I was doing and holding this cigarette packet in my hand. I was relieved that it wasn't a mine, but also embarrassed Okay. <laughs> yeah, it stopped the convoy. Uh, that's all I found. We have our last section, thinking about how actually dangerous it was being in. People died, people got injured, but there is no general service medal for many who are living and for some who were killed out there. 
here Dennis just details um, a couple close shaves moments uh, where, well, a matter of a seconds, milliseconds, make the difference between life or death. Another thing is that uh, when going back to being shot at, up in um, Dala, we had a medic, which in our case attached to a command unit, was a naval rating who did the commando training to become a medic within the commando. And one night he actually sat down with his back against the, the tent post. And as he sat down, a bullet came through, went straight, skinned the, the post, just, just literally just above his head, uh, just how close some of the, you know, these odd shots, how dangerous yeah. it could be. And we let the mortars open fire one night and had to change position because they, they would have wiped out a village otherwise. <laughs> One driver said he, he literally stopped and he saw he saw it go straight through straight past his windscreen, a bullet. Okay. Saw it. Like that. He said if I hadn't stopped that second where he was here instead of there yeah. would have been it to come straight through the side and it hit him. him. Members of four five commando got pulled out of Aden for a while to go to uh, deal with um, another insurgency at uh, Colito Barracks in Tanganyika, and likewise in Aden as well as there, there are moments where life hangs in the balance, and uh, perhaps you could have been expendable, perhaps you weren't, but y- your life could have been taken. And here, just Dennis just reflects on sort of life being in the balance. No, that that is part and parcel of the argument that servicemen should get a recognition. They don't want pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. want something which is physical, like a medal. Because the Tanganyika episode came out that none of us was injured at all. But I know they were dead and wounded because I was given the job to go and look after them, to give them first aid, to patch them up, put them on a helicopter and send them back to the ship, or cover the search them and cover them up. I didn't do it all personally. That's why I had a section. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was involved, so I know that they were there. But it could have, in those few hours, any of us could have been killed. And I think that's the importance of being in the services in somewhere like Aden, that you were there. I often wonder what recognition a soldier went off a landing craft at D-Day, got shot, killed. That was it. Did, didn't survive even putting his feet on dry ground. It's so easily done. There have already been a number of commemorations around the country at Cenotaphs for those lost in the mutiny, the massacre of June 1967. In Manchester in July, early July, we came across a number of wreaths laid at the Cenotaph there in St. Peter's Square um, from Aden veterans and other organisations who had been represented in Aden. Dennis here speaks of forthcoming commemorations in Gloucester and in York, which are by invitation only to commemorate the complete withdrawal of the United Kingdom from Aden in November 1967. In Gloucestershire, is planned to mark this occasion some years ago, and the Gloucestershire branch of the Aden Veterans Association is holding uh, a memorial. It's not a no, not a memorial. It's a memory service in Gloucester Cathedral, where the Lord Lieutenant and several dignitaries will take part in it. And there's also a wreath laying at um, the War Memorial in the the cathedral grounds. The National Aden Veterans Association is holding the same sort of thing in York. Mm-hmm. At York Minster. York Minster. Yeah. In Weymouth, 
Aiden veterans were allowed to lead the, the services parade as an occasion. Uh, there was or has been talk of uh, the same thing happened in London. But as far as I know, they still haven't agreed to allow that. So whether that will happen, I don't know. And this would be for November commemoration? No, November, yes, Armistice Day. Last Sunday saw the first episode of the BBC drama The Last Post set in Aden in the mid-60s against a backdrop of the developing tensions. Obviously, we hadn't seen it at the time, uh, but I asked Dennis, what were your thoughts ahead of the BBC Aden drama The Last Post being screened? There is a mixed feeling about it generally... Uh, with former servicemen who served in Aden, don't feel it's going to be like a a true uh, story at all. It's debatable whether Red Caps should have been involved in it because they were very restricted and they are a police force. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although a lot, they did a lot in Aden and probably a lot of it was not reported, they didn't actually face the same kind of problems as the general troops in Aden and certainly up country uh, although there may have been the odd one or two up country as it were they didn't really have any involvement at all so it is a bit of a false story I would say Very di- the fact it's made in South Africa taking away the actual feeling of a programme mm-hmm. or what it was like to serve there I've seen a few photographs and there are things in it the way they're dressed like one serviceman is wearing a vest now we're talking about 100 degrees practically all day long and in certain areas 150 degree ground temperature Mm -hmm. normally relaxing you wouldn't wear a shirt at all because of the heat and there's also somebody doing press-ups at what appears to be the middle of the day it you know it, these little things which we pick up, which may not seem very important to somebody who's never been in that situation or in that kind of country or lived in that kind of country, but it's little things that makes us smile and say, well, that's not that that's not true. That's that didn't happen. Well, little things like like we all did, where you wear a shirt, but as soon as you walk outside or certainly half an hour later that shirt will be wet through from top to bottom so to see a military policeman walking around with i won't say a a nice iron shirt but certainly a clean clean shirt quite dry as it were (laughs) didn't happen well we'll wait to see what it's like i think that they'd probably have to involve social dynamics and sort of personal relationships falling in, falling out, so there's obviously going to be some fictional, I guess, sort of soap opera aspects to it. It's not going to be... That's what it appears um, to be, exactly that. Um, That really goes back to what we were saying earlier and the reason why a medal wasn't awarded for that period of time, because you had two halves. One who lived and served in Aden itself, and those who were, we say, at the sharp end, outside of Aden. Okay. It, there was two completely, two complete lies, as it were. Operations 
where it's like a small village uh, on the outside of Aden would be searched and red caps would be involved purely as a policeman. But the actual searching and the problems which arose from it would be actually the troops involved. That gives the impression that the red caps were doing it all, which, uh, although they may have in odd occasions, they certainly, in a general way, they wouldn't in, be in that position at all. So there we have the thoughts ahead of the BBC Aiden drama, The Last Post, which perhaps have been borne out. Now, if you're listening in now, or you're listening to the catch up, the listen again, and you've not yet seen the first episode of The Last Post, the following comments contain spoilers, okay? So you may wish to uh, wait until you've seen it or just skim, skim through. I've seen a number of responses online, in person, and by email from Aiden Veterans, and some of the problems with what was seen. In one of the scenes, a red cap, a military police, slides down a rock face, and he doesn't get heavily lacerated and cut. Around Aiden was volcanic rock. It was very, very sharp, and if you slid down a considerable rock face, you would be lacerated. Towards the end of the episode, well, and during it, you see uh, red caps going out either alone or in twos in a Land Rover. Uh, one Royal Marines veteran comments to me that if you were doing that, you'd be inviting suicide. You would usually go out in groups of two or three in a convoy, and um, two or three vehicles in a convoy, not as individuals. The smartness of the uniforms, or lack thereof, has been picked up on. On the other side, the Yemeni Aden village which was shown was said to be too clean. As Dennis was pointing out there, were the red caps actually being involved in the types of operations or the level of operations depicted? It has been told to me that yes, occasionally some of them would be go out to assist other forces, but not as a unique unit in themselves going out and doing that. And also, hand in hand of that, what other services are going to be depicted as being involved in the last post. Obviously, there's lots of regiments, lots of groups, Royal Marines as well, up in the mountains, paratroopers. Are we going to hear anything of those? And the officers' camp, the military police camp in Aden, has been described as there's nothing quite like it in Aden, nothing like quite like the one depicted. So I'll leave that there for you. Yemen has always been the, like the source of trouble. And like Aden, you have Sana, which is, say, the capital, quite stable. And haven't spent a couple of days there myself. I do have some knowledge of Sana. We went to Sana and, as I say, spent a couple of days there. And one night we actually drove down in a taxi to the old souk market and walked around there for, for a few hours. And they couldn't, the people there couldn't be more friendly. It was like almost anywhere in the world. It's majority of people are quite friendly, um, whether doing business with you or not. Um, they got a sense of humor, but there's all, at the same time, there are odd few who will always cause trouble. In Yemen in particular, you've got a one hand somewhere like Sana, which is, we say fairly modern, but you still got the tribes living in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And there's always friction between the two. Money is being supplied by Egypt and they were to the, the government, but they were fighting the tribes in the mountains as well as causing trouble in Aden. When we left, we left 
they couldn't use the British as an excuse for the fighting. Mm -hmm. So that continued. And I suppose Saudi Arabia just backed one side. So what they're doing is backing one side with, we say, aircraft, uh, with the bombing and things like that, which probably nobody agrees with. If you want peace and quiet, generally speaking, it can only be achieved with violence. And unfortunately, Yemen is is um, the place where it's happened. The violence has spread over into Aden, and Aden itself now, some parts like a bomb site, Mala in particular, uh, is in terrible condition. The cemetery, the British cemetery in Mala itself is almost wrecked. I think you get a type of person who just takes pleasure in doing damage. Not If he sat in a tank, doesn't matter whether he's being fired at, if, if he thinks that building's in the way, he'll open fire and knock it down. Now, I've mentioned that Dennis has authored three books on Aiden, and I asked him this. Tell us about the books you've written about Aiden. I came out of the service with about 1,500 photographs, mainly slides, and I always wanted to do something with those photographs, but coming out, we say, starting my own business, just didn't have any time until I retired. And then I started putting it together, and it has about 800 photographs of Aden, complete with a, a history right from the word from the 1600s, even earlier still. Once I'd published and sold quite a few of them, I received more photographs and more stories, because that basically, almost everything in there is my experience. But what I was coming in was other people's experience, which added to the second book, which most books on the market for Aden combines all of that in one book. But I felt there was so much happened in the two areas that they needed to be separated. So I wrote the book, which deals with all the operations up country. And then the third book I wrote covering what happened, the terrorism down in Aden itself and the withdrawal. So there, I, here I do have the three books of Dennis's, and they are they are meaty tomes, but they're largely picture-based with moments of substantial text in them. Aiden Pictures, in which we served, is the first book, and it is pretty much what it says. The second book details the convoys from Dala, that Radvan, uh, and the Northwest Frontier, 1881 to 67, and then the final book is the about the assassination of a British Crown colony from 64 to 67. They are available off the Gloucestershire Aiden Veterans website. I will post the link with the listen again after the show. So I need to say a very big thank you to Dennis for his time. And well, I'll leave you with the anthem of the Royal Marines, A Life on the Ocean Wave, the band of HM Royal Marines. Thank you for your company. I will be back next week. 